It's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning, and as we have read together uh, the passage from which I'll be preaching, uh, I'm not going to read it again, but I would encourage you to either keep your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2, or you can turn there on page 8 of your worship folder in verses 3 through 8 that we'll be concentrating on are printed there as well. As we draw into the end of uh, the month of May and the end of officer nominations at it's our custom. We have spent some time every year or so, every other year or so, uh, to speak to the qualifications of church officers, uh, of church leadership. And this morning, I would like for us, with that in mind, uh, to look at what Paul says here of Jesus. Because I think, and I'll encourage you as officer nominations draw to a close, I would encourage you to read for yourself again First uh, Timothy chapter 3 as he lays out qualifications for elders and deacons there. But as we concentrate here on uh, Christ and and who he is uh, in Philippians chapter 2, I think you'll see that though the qualifications for elder and deacon, some may hold uh, some of those separately, uh, none of them can be held, um, none of them can be held with true faith in the gospel without what Paul outlines for us here uh, in Jesus' example of humility, that he humbled himself and emptied himself and made himself uh, nothing. You read there in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what Paul lays out here uh, throughout the book, letter, his letter to the Philippians, this theme of joy pops up again and again. And here, what he says to us is that there is a joy to be found among Jesus' people when they are loving each other and moving toward each other in humility. And Jesus is much, obviously is our example of this, but much more than our example, what Paul then says is that this mind is ours in Christ. It can be and it is ours in Christ Jesus. So how do we find true humility and joy in humility? How do we aspire to this kind of humility of counting others more significant than ourselves? How do we exalt others that we look to to lead us to exhibit this as well? Well, as he says again, in Christ Jesus. So I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at the mind of Jesus, the emptying of Jesus, and then the the humbling of Jesus. The first one is, is the mind of Jesus. And there's no denying, we read something like this and, and we like it. We want to be like it. We want to be in groups of people that live like this and we want to be a community that lives like this. But we also understand pretty innately, this is hard. To count others more significant than yourself, to, to not only concentrate on your own interests, but also the interests of others. That's not something that comes easy to any of us. Because uh, we know that humility, we know true humility is really hard. It's one of the most unnatural things that we can do. In our natural state of sin, it is one of the most unnatural things for us to do. One of the things I think about, and this is more common, it seemed to happen to me a lot when I was in campus ministry, maybe walking across the campus, maybe you've been downtown for lunch walking somewhere, or maybe even at church in the hallways, you're walking towards someone and they're waving and you wave back only to realize that they're waving at somebody behind you. We love that feeling, right? There, there's, there's a feeling of embarrassment, uh, of shame in that moment, because the way I process it, because that's, that's the moment you've been caught. 
You've been exposed. You've been caught thinking something was about you when it wasn't about you. And the reason that that's embarrassing, because we realize that that's how we think about everything most of the time. And it's a moment like that that actually calls us on it, because our entire lives in our heads seem to play out that way in reference to ourselves. I think Paul would say that is our mind. That is our natural mind, is to think of things and process things in reference to self. Uh, Because in, in a lot of ways, selfishness is the most natural thing for us to do. But what Paul points us here to is that this is not the way with Jesus. And it should not be the way in Jesus's church. And again, in verse five, he says, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. And so we'd ask then, what, what did Jesus have in mind? What was so important to him? Who was he? What did he do? Why did he do it? And what Jesus, uh, what Paul points us here to is what theologians have referred to as Jesus's humiliation. Now, we, we hear that word, we think of humiliation um, as something that comes from the outside, as something that's done external to us. Uh, something happens outside of us and it humiliates us, it brings us low. Now, that certainly did happen to Jesus. He entered the world as a baby. The maker of the world comes into this world as a man and no one was paying attention. Uh, his 12 closest friends uh, consistently misunderstand his teaching uh, and abandon him at the end of his life in his hour of greatest need. One of those friends actually is the one that betrays him. He's then mocked and scorned and falsely accused and put to death on trumped-up charges. So in that sense, sure, Jesus was humiliated. But when we refer to Jesus' humiliation, uh, what we're actually talking about is his whole the whole, his whole condescension of becoming a man, that he is and was and has been eternally God. And he chose of his own will to become a man and to endure the trials of this life. And so that's what's so key here about what Paul points to is that Jesus's humiliation was his choice. It was of his own will. It was his mind. He volunteered for it. Read, read what he says there. You can put he, Jesus, as the subject of any of these sentences. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He obeyed even to the point of death. This is the mind of Jesus that Paul points us to. He's humble. In the truest sense of the word, all that he is, all in all that he does, he counts others more significant than himself. Now, I'm not saying that that makes sense, but that's what Paul says is true of Jesus. And again, this is hard for us. It's, we like it and maybe want to be it, but we know that it's hard, and it's hard for us even to grasp fully because of individualism, but because of the individualism of our world and of our culture, we all breathe it. You know, how... Does, does society exist for the individuals? The individual exists for society? Does the community exist for me? Do I exist for the community? We're all battling these questions in different spheres and different subjects. But the mind of Jesus, we're told here, as we're exhorted to count others more significant than ourselves and to look also not only at our own interests but the interests of others, we're told that this mind is ours in Jesus because that's who he is. Well, how can we know that and more than that, how can we follow this? Well, it's in the next two things. Paul points to 
that Jesus emptied himself and that he humbled himself. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. So first, what does this mean, the emptying of Jesus, that he emptied himself and made himself nothing? What did he, what did he empty himself of? Well, before we answer that, back up to verse 6. And we read there that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be clung to. Though he was in the form of God, meaning though he was God, he is God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As we read together from Colossians 1, he is the, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, the author says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's who Jesus is. Second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, the one by whom, through whom, for whom all things are, were created. Jesus is, was, always has been, and always will be God himself. He is God. He didn't have to take on godness. He didn't have to attain to being God. He is God. One of the things that gets lost here in the English translation is that in the Greek, this reads as a poem. And some commentators wonder if maybe Paul was borrowing from a hymn that was already known to these churches, or maybe he's authoring a new one right here. But regardless, you, you have to take in the significance that not 20, 30 years after Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth, not 20, 30 years later, there are churches all over the place that are worshiping him as God, praying to him as God, acknowledging him, professing him, and proclaiming him to be God. Now, maybe that makes sense. In some sense, we think about the Greek world and their polytheism and Greek mythology, but you think about the beginnings of the church when the gospel would go to a new town, the first place they took it was to the synagogues, to the Jews. The foundation of the church first was Jewish believers. A group of people on the earth that would have been the last who would have worshipped a man as God. Yet again, not a couple of decades later, that's what they're doing. And so Paul tells us here, first, he says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want you to think about something, uh, and I'm not, wanting you to, I'm not asking you to commit heresy here, but can, just with our limited faculties, can you imagine what would it be like to be God? What would it be like to be God and to know that you are God? You think about Jesus. He possessed all the majesty of deity. He possessed all the powers and performed all the functions of deity. He was invulnerable to pain. He was invulnerable to frustration, embarrassment, regret. He existed from eternity in perfect peace, harmony, and serenity. His supremacy is unmatched. His satisfaction is complete. And so he had every right by his mere existence to be recognized, revered, served, and worshipped by angels and creatures alike. And he had every right to keep himself immune from the ills of this life that our sin has brought upon this world. All of those things were his right by God, but then we read that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to cling to. It was his right. It was rightfully his to say, this is what I will do and this is what I will not do. But he did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
He did not insist on his rights. Instead, we're told, he emptied himself. He laid those claims aside. Why? Because that's who he is. Because he's humble. You draw a point like this and you think, okay, what's a good illustration? How can I illustrate this? How can we wrap our minds around it? And then you realize something as profound as this, there's no illustration that fits. Except a story about Jesus himself. When you think about John chapter 13 in John's gospel, this begins Jesus' last hours with his disciples before he's betrayed. And there's something fascinating that we read about Jesus' mind at that moment. We, we read that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. He knew this. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And you know what he does next? He takes off his outer robe, takes a serving garment, water in a bowl, gets down on his knees, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. So mind-blowing of a thing for him to do that Peter says, no, you can't do this. And you read that story, and you go, who would do something like that? And the answer is, Jesus would. Because that's who he is. He emptied himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he could have. The second thing, though, of this emptying is then that he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here we see a key to understanding this emptying. Uh, And Alec Matir puts it like this. The question is not what did he empty himself of, but what did he empty himself into? He became a man. He is and always has been God, but there's a moment in time when he was born of a virgin that he became a man. So it's an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. He was and always has been fully God, but then he also, also became fully man. Didn't make himself less God, but he did make himself fully human. But more so than that, I love the choice of Paul's words. He says he took the form of a servant. Which in the Greek would be bond servant or slave. He was a son. Knowing from eternity the love of his father willingly chooses to become a servant. Under the law bound to obey, charged with a mission, threatened with the direst of consequences should he fail. So the picture of Jesus that we have is that he had all the rights, but he chose to become a slave with no rights. He emptied himself. This is God. This is our Lord. This is our shepherd, our Savior, And if we're honest, we will admit that to our world and to the world that we live in, this is utter weakness and foolishness. And if we're honest, we will admit that these are not the things that we aspire to. These are not the kind of people that we exalt or look to exalt. Because to our world, it is weakness and foolishness. It doesn't make sense. And we are just as prone to despise it as the world is, but this is Jesus. This is his mind. This is what he's done. He emptied himself. He didn't insist on his rights. And he became a servant to serve who? Us. 
And again, I'm not claiming this makes sense, but I am claiming it's true. So he emptied himself. The final thing here is that he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And I heard a pastor one time ask a really intriguing question. I don't think I would have come up with it myself. Do you really want a humble God? It's an interesting question. And if you think about it, it does seem like it would probably actually be easier to believe in an arrogant God. A God that does insist upon his rights. That just says, I don't care anything about y'all. I just want you to do what I want. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, he says it like this. He says, our modern world is okay with an infinite God as long as he doesn't get too personal. Okay with religion and spirituality, just don't get up in my business. But this is the thing. Do you know what having a humble God tells you? A God who is humble, a God who counts others more significant than himself. Again, I'm not claiming it makes sense. But a humble God tells you, what that tells you is that he cares. He definitely cares. And he definitely is personal. He doesn't just care about the big things or the exciting things or the good things. He cares, he cares about each and everything that he's made. All of it. Because all of it comes from him. He cares about each and everything that has ever happened in your life. He cares about each and every thought and desire of your heart. He cares. He chooses to take these things up for himself because he cares. And then we read in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Where do we see Jesus' humility? It's in his obedience. And so first, the way that we know that Jesus cares is because it was an act of obedience, meaning, again, that he did it willingly. He made the choice. But he also did it at the request of his father, which makes it even more beautiful. The father cares so much that he would ask his son to do this. The son cares so much that he would willingly and joyfully do it out of love for his father and out of love for us. But it's more than just obedience. Even more than that, and I think this is the key, it was a long obedience. It wasn't a momentary act. Scottish pastor, theologian Donald MacLeod puts it like this. He says, the condescension of being born is beyond imagining, but it was only the beginning of a long downward journey through homelessness, poverty, exhaustion, shame, and pain to Gethsemane and then to Calvary. In other words, This act of obedience was an act of obedience, a choice, a willful act of obedience every single day of his life that he walked this earth. He made the choice to continue in the way that he was going. This makes sense if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew and you look at the time Jesus spends in the wilderness after his baptism. The devil comes to him personally to tempt him. Every single one of those temptations is about getting Jesus to reverse course on this right here. Why humble yourself? Why think of them more than yourself? You have every right to claim everything you want for yourself. Do it. And that's what Jesus resists. 
in those temptations. So think about this act of obedience. Think about the long obedience with me like this. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit plan and agree to this. Then, in a moment in time, the one who created time enters time as he's born. The maker of worlds comes into the world and no one even was watching. And then, daily, the rest of his life, he is reenacting and renewing the decision to humble himself. Moving further and further into the pain and the shame that he knew it was going to cause. And ultimately, what does it do? It leads him to his death. And again, the second person of the Trinity, the one by whom, through whom, for whom, are all things. He's immune to death. He's the Lord and giver of life, but he deliberately takes mortal form and he makes the choice every single day to move toward death, deciding not to be its master, but to be its willing victim. He accepts this mission and this destiny where it would have been disobedience for him not to die. And he daily lives that decision on our behalf. But again, it wasn't just death. It's death in its worst form, not because of the physical form that it took, but because in this case, it was the instrument and symbol of the curse due to sin itself. And he bears all of it. And we read in the Gospels, he would cry and he would not be answered. He'd lose all sense experientially in that moment of divine sonship enjoyed from eternity. He would lose all sense in that moment experientially of his father's love and care. And again, Donald McLeod says it like this, into that tiny space, his body on a hill outside Jerusalem, into, into that fraction of time, the ninth hour on Good Friday, God gathered the sin of the world And there and then, in the flesh of his own son, he condemned it. And on the cross, at its darkest point, we have Jesus the Son knowing himself only as sin and knowing his Father as sin's just judge and avenger. And he made the decision to move toward that every day of his life. In that moment, he's alone with the world's sin and a holy God. And there we read that the author, giver, and sustainer of life itself, he so renounced his rights, he so laid aside his rights, he so counted others more significant than himself that he died. You see, it's interesting. You read through the Old Testament. One of the things that's clear throughout the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament sacrificial system clearly taught the principle of substitution, that another could bear the penalty due to sin. But another thing that's clear from that system is that those sacrifices were always incomplete because you could never come back to worship without first offering sacrifice. And so every time you wanted to commune with God, there had to be a sacrifice. And another, and yet another, and yet another. And again, what the whole teaching of the system points us to is why was it incomplete? And I think it's this, because animals were never a willing sacrifice. They couldn't be. 
and it's without a willing sacrifice, they would always be incomplete. And again, that's the beauty of what Paul points us to here, and it's what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 53. That if there was ever going to be a willing sacrifice, a man was going to have to do it. And so we read in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid though on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, the question is, who would do that? Jesus would, because that's who he is, and that's who he's called us to be. And that's who he's empowered us to be as he's put his spirit within us. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. You fill that blank in with a lot of different things. Jesus said, by how you love one another. How you live toward and move toward one another. That's how the world will know. How could we ever do that? Because Jesus did it first. Because Jesus did it for us. Because Jesus, by his life, has given us life to live. This is our Lord. This is our shepherd. This is the one that says to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. And who would say that to people? Except the one that did it and the one that has empowered us to do it. And so I ask First Church, brothers and sisters, do you know the mind of Christ our Savior? Does it live in you day to day, empowering all that you do and say? I love the hymn, I had to quote it. Where are our hearts? Where are our minds? How are we moving and living with one another? What do we aspire to? Who do we exalt? Who do we honor? Who do we want to model ourselves after? Who do we want to follow? These are questions that continually face us in this life. But be encouraged, Christian, because this is the mind of Christ. And we are told that it is ours also in him. That be an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would we know and have your mind as you have loved us as you have given your life for us, as you now intercede for us, would we be those who love and intercede for others? Would you build this church up as it speaks the truth in love? Would we be marked by these things as you have given them to us and would you write them on our hearts? We pray these things by your spirit in your matchless in glorious name, amen.